Our sermon text today will be from Acts 2, so you can turn there if you would. And I'll begin reading in verse 22 and conclude verse 36. You're picking up mid-sermon in Peter's sermon on Pentecost. He says, beginning in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned into Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. The word of the Lord. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the attestation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is our salvation. And I pray now, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. And in Christ's name we pray, and amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great spine of the confessing church, which was the Christian resistance to Adolf Hitler, he once started a book that he would never finish. The book is known to us as Ethics. And the reason that Bonhoeffer never finished it was because he believed what he was writing in that book. For in Ethics, Bonhoeffer wrote, The world is not divided between Christ and the devil. It is completely the world of Christ, whether it recognizes this or not. The dark, evil world may not be surrendered to the devil, but must be claimed. For the one who won it by coming in the flesh, 
by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Bonhoeffer did not just believe this in theory, he acted upon it as a holy conspirator against the Nazi regime. And it would cost him his life. For on April 9th, 1945, just two months after his 39th birthday, and just three weeks before the cowardly suicide of Adolf Hitler, Bonhoeffer, with complete peace and quiet resolve, ascended the scaffolding, and he met his death. And yet, Bonhoeffer would rebuke even me today for how I told the story. For the final words of this pastor as he said farewell to his imprisoned parish, who was lurking for, looking for some word as he was sent off by guard to the scaffolding, his final words to them were, this is the end for me. This is the beginning of life. Bonhoeffer could say this in the shadow of death because he understood that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, was not just a religious fable. It was not just one hypothesis on a buffet of worldviews. It was not just a happy thought to ease our fears. Rather, he knew that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a historical fact that happened in time and space. Where the crucified Christ, the God-man who was dead and entombed, shook death off, folded his burial linens, and walked out of the tomb in a resurrected body. And the risen Lord didn't just change his clothes. He changed the entire fabric of humanity, where death no longer had the final word. But he did. And the word was now resurrection and eternal life for everyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ. And Bonhoeffer believed in both the reality of the resurrection and the glory that awaits for all who are in Christ, because they too will be resurrected. And so I have two simple goals for us on this Easter Sunday in 2023. I want to bolster our confidence in the reality of the resurrection, and I want to bolster our joy in the hope of our resurrection. We'll begin by joining the crowd mid-sermon on Pentecost, as the Apostle Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit that was just poured out on the church, preaches Christ crucified for the first time in human history. In this type of setting, we know that because the Lord said, wait until you receive power from on high. So Peter received power from on high and preaches Christ in him crucified. And over 3,000 souls are converted. And the Great Commission begins its fulfillment in earnest. First, we'll consider the reality of the resurrection. Namely, that it is an objective fact grounded in human history not part of a subjective faith grounded in human emotion. And this is part of what Peter draws the crowd's attention to. And remember, this was the very crowd who had called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ several weeks prior. And one of the ways he shows them of the objectivity of the resurrection is 
the stunning way that Christ fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened in a moment. That is, there was a specific second where the pulse of the dead Christ that had ceased started to beat again. There was a second when that happened and where his blood began to circulate his body again and where his collapsed lungs breathed and inflated again and where his shut eyes blinked and opened and saw the stone walls around him. That was a literal moment of resurrection. However, the resurrection was not the work of a moment as if it just came out of nowhere. No, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of divine promises and divine prophecies that had been piling up for over a thousand years in sacred scripture. As Peter proclaims Christ to this largely Jewish crowd who knew well the Old Testament, he points to two Psalms, could have pointed to many, he points to two, namely Psalm 16 and 110, which were written by King David about a thousand years before Christ, but which clearly foreshadow Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. So of course, in the immediate context of these psalms, David was writing about himself. But Peter, empowered by the Spirit, reveals that David in the Spirit was also pointing ahead to a fuller fulfillment that would be fulfilled by the true heir, the true descendant of his throne. Specifically, Psalm 16, verse 10, which is repeated in our text today, says... For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. So think place of the dead, the grave. Or let your Holy One see corruption. That is to say, the one spoken of here will not remain dead and his body will not start to decompose, which interestingly typically starts to happen on day four. So King David declares this. But Peter makes the obvious point that King David died. And if you had a, a GPS and a crowbar, you could go and see his dead remains there. But David wasn't speaking about himself. His words were looking a thousand years ahead to the truly holy one. Verse 34, or excuse me, verse 31, Peter says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. Psalm 16 is one of many psalms that clearly point to not just the death, but the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Or consider these words from Isaiah's famous servant song. So Isaiah is speaking of the one who will be pierced for our transgressions, which we know well. And then in verse 9 and 10 of 53, he says, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Which is speaking of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich Jewish man who gave Jesus his grave 
in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, this is still Isaiah, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Remember Peter saying in his sermon, this Jesus delivered up to according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was ultimately God's sovereign plan of redemption. Continuing on in Isaiah, follow the logic here. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So Isaiah says the one that will fulfill and offer a guilt offering, namely he will die for the salvation of others, that one will see his offspring and his days will be prolonged and then he will accomplish all that the Lord set up to accomplish with his hand. Again, there are many other places we could go, but rest assured, dear Christian, the resurrection happened in a moment, but it was not the work of a moment. It was the fulfillment of over a thousand years of specific, detailed, fine-tuned prophecies that were written through many human pens, but all authored and inspired by the Holy Spirit, which Peter presents to them. So prophecy fulfillment is one of the evidences that he gives, but there's something else he points to in his sermon that evidences the resurrection, not, not just in the fulfillment of prophecy, but now in the fearlessness of the apostles themselves. We must remember that the one, the very one proclaiming this sermon is none other than Peter. The one who denied Christ at his moment of greatest need out of fear because a servant girl asked him if he knew him. And he said, I swear to God that I have nothing to do with that man. That Peter, the same Peter that then fled during his trial and during his pursuit of his passion on the cross when he could have used a friend. And then the same Peter who, after he saw the empty tomb, went and hid behind locked doors because he was afraid of what the authorities would do to the disciples of Jesus. And yet here he stands now proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit with conviction, with courage, and with authority, and with fearlessness, despite the fact that you want to be afraid? This now makes you public enemy number one of the two pillars of authority in Rome at that time, or excuse me, in Jerusalem at that time. The Sanhedrin and Caesar Public enemy number one, if you proclaim the risen Jesus Christ. And indeed, we know from history that Peter would die by crucifixion for proclaiming Christ at the order of Caesar. So what could account for this startling change? Obviously, there's only one explanation. Peter had an encounter with the risen Christ. And there is simply no other explanation. And he himself says it. In his sermon, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and we are all witnesses to it. 
Or consider the other primary apostle in the New Testament, namely the Apostle Paul, a man who was also sent to his death, being beheaded, likely under the reign of Nero as well, because of his faithfulness to Christ. And yet prior to that, Paul had been the biggest adversary of the church and the biggest opponent to Jesus Christ. Acts 9.1 says that he was breathing threats and breathing murder against the disciples of the Lord. Or when he is on trial before King Agrippa himself, this is part of his personal testimony, verse, uh, chapter 26. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote, which was the deciding vote, against them. So he is offering this self-incriminating evidence about what he thought he ought to do. And then something happened that completely changed Paul's life and turned him from the most ardent opponent of Christ into the most impassioned apostle of Jesus Christ. And what was that? There's one explanation. Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ and was stopped in his murderous tracks by Christ, who flattened his pride, revealed his sin, and then opened his eyes to see him not just as Lord, but as Savior. And then he raised Paul to new life and gave him a new mission. And that Paul carried out fearlessly until Christ called him home. And his head was removed from his shoulders, as they say. Yes, friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a happy thought for when we're down. It's not just a religious hypothesis. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an objective fact of history as immovable as iron and as glorious as the Andromeda galaxy. And though it is encouraging and edifying to see evidence for it, and there is more we could point to, indeed even scripture itself offers this, it's also important to realize, see, this is one of the dangers of apologetics, is the hearer can think that they're now in a position to judge whether what you just said about God is true. <laughs> that, that's not true. What is true is the reality of the resurrection is not waiting for human approval in order for it to be true. Jesus Christ is not crossing his fingers, hoping that the Gallup polls come back really good in favor of the resurrection. No, no human being determines the fate of whether the resurrection of Christ is true. It is exactly the opposite. Because it's true, it now determines the fate of every human who's ever existed, depending on how you respond to it. And that's why Peter didn't end his sermon with, so aren't those really interesting references? You should love my Bible study. Now he ends by saying, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He makes them feel the full weight of the cross and the resurrection of the Son of God because it is true and no one can remain neutral to it. It demands a response and they gave a response. Continuing past our text, 37 and 38, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Which is the exactly right question. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far that the Lord calls to himself. Friends, the resurrection of Christ demands a response, not just an intellectual response, but a call to loyalty one way or another. The options are repent and believe and enter into forgiveness that leads to eternal life or reject and disbelieve and enter into judgment that leads to eternal death. Those are the only two options. And if you remain neutral, you have decided the latter. And so before we conclude by considering what the resurrection means for us who believe, I want to make the call clear. If you have never believed in the risen Christ, if you have never been cut to the heart by your sin, if sin doesn't bother you at all, Christ likely stands before you not as Savior, but as judge. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sin and believe in Christ, for this offer still stands, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you will receive eternal life. The question is not whether Christ has risen and is alive. He is. The question is, who is he to you? Lord and Savior or judge? Do not leave this sanctuary on this Easter in 2023 without knowing for certain that you have been forgiven and redeemed and grafted into the resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith, just like Peter and Paul were. I said at the outset, today my goal is to, one, bolster our confidence in the reality of the resurrection. We saw this through fulfillment of prophecy and the fearlessness of the apostles. And then, two, to bolster our joy in the hope of the resurrection. And there are many things the resurrection means for us. There are many things that could be said, but I want to conclude by focusing on one. And it is this, Christian. The resurrection means that all temporal suffering is producing eternal glory. The resurrection means that all temporal suffering you experience will be worked out by God to produce an eternal glory that can never fade. Paul writes to the saints in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15 He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So Christians, because Christ rose, we will rise from the dead. Also, we must. 
And when we are, though we'll be in physical bodies and be immortal and imperishable and perfected and sinless, that is going to happen. But in case you haven't noticed, we're not there yet. And neither am I. Our bodies are increasingly aching and our indwelling sin is still constantly rearing its head. But the key to being a Christian with an indomitable joy, even in the midst of very real pain, is to realize that anything the Lord ordains for you is preparation for greater glory that you will have Christ in you, more of that you wouldn't have were it not for that. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The truth is, and we know this, we are holy in Christ, but we are still far from being truly holy, plagued by unbelief, plagued by sinfulness and selfishness that is so easily provoked. We're still a long way from looking just like Christ. But it's through suffering often that our Lord reveals to us what we think we do such a good job of hiding. He reveals the truth of our hearts and the truth of our frailty and the truth of our sin. But friends, suffering doesn't just reveal it and provoke it. When we receive it by faith as God's wise providence, trusting him as our father who works all things for good, even and especially when we don't understand, we will discover that the trial, which we never would have signed up for, actually becomes the instrument of our sanctification. It becomes the instrument by which God roots out the dead skin cells of our old man that still linger. He grinds them out and then he replaces them with more of the glorious image of the risen Christ. So perhaps a picture will help see this in conclusion. Most of you know I do live edge woodworking on the slide on the side where you take a live edge slab and you work it down. And if, if you've ever seen a finished large live edge slab, it is a glorious thing to look at. At least I think so. It's been nine years and I still have never gotten over it. But if you never saw a finished piece, you had no category for a finished live edge piece. And you watched me for an hour working on a raw piece of wood. No idea where that story was headed. You would think that I was being quite harsh at times, perhaps even cruel. And when I got out the angle grinder, you'd think I was a wood-hating monster before whom every tree in the forest should dread. But why am I doing this? Because to make a raw slab glorious, you must do what is uncomfortable at times. And especially if there's a hole in the wood or a patch that's dead, you'd perhaps think I was especially harsh because I have to take a grinder and get into the nooks and crannies and with a, a wire brush, scrape it all out. And if the slab could talk, it would say, ouch, a lot. But if you knew what I was doing, if you ever saw a finished piece, you wouldn't think it was cruel despite how it looked because you would know that I was doing what it took to extract the deadness so that I could pour into that hole 
solid, glorious resin. If you've seen these river tables, the wood and the resin in the middle, it is a beautiful thing. But what had to happen was what was perishable and dead had to be extracted so that what is solid and glorious and beautiful could be then poured into it. So that the part that was once the most soft and the most worthless in the piece has now become the most featured because it was cleaned and filled with something from outside of itself that it could not have produced, that it needed intervention into, something to be poured into. And all of this work is vindicated the moment the finishing oil touches the wood, when all the grain and all the glory pop and is established and it's sealed. So what seemed hard and long and arduous is now seen as a light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that has been revealed through it. And so this is a picture of the, of the sufferings and the trials that we face now in light of the resurrection to come. Yes, we face trials. Yes, we face hardships. Yes, we face miscarriages and unexpected loss and frustrating sin patterns and confusing health issues and discouragements and seasons of depression and relational misunderstandings and the natural breakdown of our body. We face these things as Christians. Our Lord promised it in this world. You will have trials, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And friends, this is why the resurrection changes everything. If we do not see life through the resurrection lens, we will become faint-hearted. If we do not see life through the resurrection lens, we will be discouraged because pain hurts and life is hard. But when by faith we put on the resurrection lens and we see that eternal glow on the horizon, everything changes because we remember that we are the Lord's workmanship and he is doing only what is necessary. So that when the resurrection life pours all on over us, the full grain and the full glory of Christ in us, what he has been accomplishing, will be revealed. When we see him, we will then be made like him because we will see him as he is. And he will be proven as the perfect craftsman the perfect Redeemer who loved us enough not just to save us, but to sanctify us by whatever means possible. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce writes, This is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. So let us not grow faint-hearted saints, but let us glory today and every day in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a fact more stubborn than iron and a glory that will transform even our greatest trial. Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our Lord and our God, we thank you not just that you are resurrected, but Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to reveal Christ to us in all of his glory. 
Lord, as, as you said to, to Thomas after you presented yourself, you believe because you have seen, but blessed are those who have, have not seen and yet believe. So thank you that you have counted us among the blessed ones who know that Christ is risen, that Christ is Savior. And Holy Spirit, we pray that the reality of the resurrection would seep into our bones even deeper as a people that we may be a sturdy, ruddy, joyful people through all things, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ to Goodlessville and beyond.